1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today at the channel. I just spoke with Anna Shields about her marvelous new book, *One Who Knows Me: Friendship and Literary Culture in Mid-Tong China*. This came out just this year, in 2015, with Harvard University Press, and it's a I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today at the channel. I just spoke with Anna Shields about her marvelous new book, One Who Knows Me: Friendship and Literary Culture in Mid-Tong China. This came out just this year in 2015 with Harvard University Press, and it's a really fabulous book. It's beautifully written, it's compellingly argued, and it gives readers a chance to meet, cultivate, get to know And finally, be very, very moved by the progression of a series of friendships um, in the context of groups of friends, binaries of friends, pairs of friends, such that you really have a sense um, over the course of the book that you're getting to know some of these relationships and that fact of or that feeling of getting to know some of these relationships as they're progressing through the chapters and through the kinds of texts and the kinds of genres and interactions that Anna's giving us access to. You know, it really makes the whole experience um, very moving by the end of it. So in addition to a really compelling study that informs how we think about the histories of elite male friendship, um, uh, the histories of social, political, cultural, and literary contexts of various sorts in um, the Tang Dynasty and beyond, Anna also gives us access to some really amazing primary source documents through her translations that are embedded in the chapters of the text. So it's a really wonderful introduction to some really important um, and very powerful documentary sources, as well as a very compelling argument about friendship, innovation, literary, and historical culture in the Tang Dynasty. It really was a pleasure to talk with her about it, and it genuinely was a pleasure to read the book. So I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the book, Um, that'll give you an opportunity to really get inside of some of these primary sources in a way that we can't really do um, so much in this medium. And thank you very much, as ever, for listening. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Anna Shields about her new book, One Who Knows Me. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Anna, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. So am I. So, Anna, let's start as is traditional for the channel by talking a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to the history of Tang literature.
0: Well, I actually began as a in French literature. I, in my undergraduate years, I was doing French and comparative literature. So I'm actually, I always say that I'm late to Chinese and late to the study of China in that I discovered Chinese literature in translation my freshman year in college, but then continued to major in French and study abroad and, and all that sort of thing. And it was very clear that I wanted to go to graduate school and I wanted to be a professor and it was the 1980s and China was opening up and all of a sudden when I I was reading more and more in translation, it just became clear to me that this was a very exciting moment to begin to study China in the West. And I read uh, books by Steve Owen, certainly, and a number of things in translation. And so after I graduated, I went to Taiwan for a year and then from Taiwan applied to graduate schools in to do Chinese literature, and then just basically never looked back, and um, that's that's really the story. My it was a passion for literature that brought me to China, and then kind of discovering that wonderful moment in the 1980s of, of reform and opening up, and that was that was uh, an interesting convergence of events. I think.
1: Well, the book is amazing, so I want to get that out right at the very beginning. It's an incredible book, and it does a lot of different kinds of things that are nourishing in overlapping and um, and different kinds of ways. So there's a lot of really fabulous translation here of the kinds of sources that are woven into the story. It's also just an amazing um, argument, a very compelling argument, and a really beautiful read. So thank you for that. And let's talk a little bit about how you came to this. Um, so to just kind of set the stage a little bit for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read the book, this is the first book-length study of Friendship. In the Chinese tradition, as you um, talk about a little bit in the book, it focuses on the period from the 790s through the 820s and extends a little bit beyond that to follow the paths of some important writers who are kind of key to what's going on here a little bit further into the 9th century. It asks, among other things, and we'll explore this, I'm sure, in the hour to come, how writing on friendship both reflected and also shaped broader transformations in mid-Tong literary culture, and it weaves together both historical and literary analyses in offering some answers um, to some of the major questions in the book. So what brought you to friendship? How did you come to focus on this? And how did you come to decide to write a book-length object about this problem?
0: Mm. Uh, the second question is actually very interesting because I don't know that I intended to, <laughs> but the first
1: question is so. The, my first
0: book uh, looked at the development of the, the the tradition of the song lyric in during the Five Dynasties, but was very concerned with the impact of social change, social or cultural change, on this important literary innovation, you know, the, the, the um, promotion of the song lyric. So within my larger research trajectory. It wasn't really intended to be a book about friendship. It was a book about the ways that midtown writers turned to writing about private experience and why they did that and how that changed um, midtown literary styles and topics so much. Um, but I came into it really through the work of Bai Ji and Yuan Zhen um, and looking at their exchange poetry and, and trying to grapple with this extraordinary sense of intersubjectivity of the way that the two writers uh, engaged one another. Another, literarily, but also it seemed psychologically and emotionally. And so they were really my avenue into the question of what constituted friendship in this period and how was it represented in literature. There was, however, so at first I thought, oh, I'll just have a couple of articles about Baijiu and Zhen, and that, you know, that would kind of be the new project. And then I really started to think and and push myself and read more widely in the other quote unquote kind of the schools and circles of the Nintang. And what I realized is that there really wasn't um, a lot of work that was able to see across the period and see how all of these people were, in fact, grappling with certain kinds of social and political circumstances, competition and um, social background and responding to them in some of the same ways. So I realized that I really had to deal with the Hayou circle, with the Hayu group of, of of friends and literati. And so that is when it really, it became, it was clear to me that this was not going to be a couple of articles, that in order to really represent what was happening with this turn towards the private life, specifically with friendship in the period, I was going to have to broaden my scope and and take a look at some people who are tough to read sometimes, Um and to to really think about the ways that friendship practices manifested themselves across different kinds of writing, different genres, and across different groups. People that we tend to um, kind of subdivide, I think, sometimes unnecessarily into cliques and groups. So that's how that happened.
1: And just to kind of uh, put a little bit of a crumb here that we'll um, come back to you later, the Bai and Yuan exchange, um, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole book, and you uh-huh. totally transformed formed me, I guess it's, um, I'll say, into a Baijui um fan. <laughs> <laughs> to good, good. super fascinating, and we'll talk about that as well. So um, let's get right into it. Um, the, I'll set a little bit of a stage um, so that uh, listeners can understand a little bit of the framework, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So the larger framework, or part of the larger framework within which this story develops, is going to be a kind of way of understanding the changing social and political conditions of the late 80s, 8th, and early ninth centuries. Um, we have a cu- at least a couple of things happening that are really, really important. One, as you lay out right in the introduction, is a kind of explosion um, or expansion, rather, of social networks in the mid-Tang. More men from a wider range of family background, especially from beyond the prestigious lineages, are participating in the Tang government. The imperial court is taking on less importance as the center of literary composition And together, as you describe here um, in the introduction, these two factors are encouraging friendship practices among elite men, and also, importantly, the representations of those friendship practices in texts. There's also a diversification of literature across the empire, and I'm sure we'll talk about that um, in the chapters to come. Now, the chapters of the book are organized in a way that's um, very, I'll just say, it very satisfying for a reader um, and makes a lot of sense structurally, Mm -hmm. given the nature of the top. They're roughly organized according to the life course, as you describe it here, of Tang Literati, from early writing for patrons and exams to funerary writing and performance on the death of friends. And we'll get to, um, I hope, all of those in the hour to come. Okay, so the first chapter gives us... A sense of kind of what the what is friendship here, right? What did it mean to be a friend? Um, How were people talking about friendship, and why did it become such an important theme in this period? And one of the things that's happening in this chapter brings us to the title of the book, um, and it's something that Mm. I'd like to ask you about. Mm. You survey some of the key terms that are related to friendship in texts from before the Han through the Tang, and you focus on um, some of them which are particularly important. And the associ- associations of which are particularly important for the writers that we'll look at. Okay, so rather than asking you to talk about all of them, right, which it's <laughs> fascinating, it's fascinating, I'll ask you to talk about one in particular. One who knows me. Um, can you talk about the significance of this um, and its importance for the study? Sure.
0: Yeah, because... Um, there were so many things that I could have chosen, right? And so I talk a little bit about the different terms for knowing. So we have the druji, which becomes important in chapter two as the as the patron, and I think it primarily signifies the patron even through the end of the tongue. And we have the much more famous um that goes on uh, really after the tongue to be the predominant term for French. I would argue, well, trujin and druji. And so why did I choose drujwaja for the title? Um, because 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 of the emphasis that I see in the texts on the friendship being a way to come to understand oneself and the ways in which I see the writers defining themselves in terms of their relationship with the friend and sometimes in opposition um, to that friend. And so the whole problem of knowing uh, both self-knowledge and knowledge of the other and then, you know, whatever other kinds of knowledge that can lead to Really, to me, is a theme that runs through all of these texts of, of the of the mid and I don't know that that's true for other periods of friendship, but it's quite clear to me that the problem of knowing and the problem of discovery that is so important to friendship in the period spills over into the other kinds of knowing that they're wrestling with, the knowledge of heaven, the knowledge of their fate, um, grappling with their helplessness in the face of kind of the vicissitudes of political careers and and how do they deal with that. So um, my choice of the term, of the true watcher, reflects what I see as really a central theme of the the text on friendship from from this mid moment.
1: Now, I've already mentioned um, the importance of the fact that literary and historical threads are woven together in the book. And it very much contributes to and builds on and works from both of these um, ways of talking and ways of knowing and ways of reading um, evidence, right? And actually shows, I think, really usefully um, in the book that they're not, you know, history and literature are fundamentally part of the same conversation yeah.
0: when she will
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly and it's and that's really um, a very striking and a really beautiful thing about the book so here um, right from the first chapter you're laying some of the historical foundations within which to understand the representations and practices of friendship that we're going to see later and we've talked about some of them right we've already talked about the appearance of more men from less prominent families in the Tang government. Um, you'd describe a new ta- cultural taste for innovation that's happening in this period, and also a growing need for broad social networks in order to pass the exams and gain office. And in fact, the exams or the examinations turn out to be a really important part of what's going on here. Um, you describe in an important part of this chapter the increasing and important role that the Tang exams are playing in the formation of literati identity and social relations. So can you speak a little bit to that? What do we need to understand about the role of exams in this story to kind of contextualize what's going to happen later on as we look at specific examples?
0: Absolutely. So the role of the examinations in ninth century, late 8th and 9th century culture is in some ways Exaggerated, and I think Nick Tackett's book, which is, uh, which speaks to the role of social, which speaks to, um, social transformational or the lack thereof in the ninth century is going to help us rethink how we talk about the exams. My emphasis on, um, the examinations to the practice and publicization of friendship is to underscore the examination's role in, um, in celebrity, in competition for Scarce attention from patrons, and as a stage on which uh, literati from not so prestigious backgrounds could perform and hopefully attract attention and position and that kind of thing. Because they really did have um, scarce means to advance themselves if they didn't have uh, good family backgrounds and powerful patrons. Um, So, the other thing, of course, that the examinations provided was this really unprecedented. Arena for the literary composition. In other words, so these young men would show up um, uh, in in the summer and autumn and begin to prepare, and they would write and write and write, and they would circulate their their and their warming scrolls to prospective patrons. But we don't stop and think about, in fact, this training. What does it do? What kinds of things are they producing? And the fact is, we have mostly concentrated on poetry. But the fact is, of course, that they are writing all across. The spectrum of Chinese literature, right? They're writing funerary texts, they're writing letters. So when they presented these warming scrolls, they're really showcasing their abilities in, a, in as broad a way as possible. You know, their, their ability to think, their ability to flatter, their ability to use correct illusions, to master the classics, and so on. Um, so this kind of Olympic style training that they're doing. Um, Also allows them to uh, compete for attention and brings them in contact with lots and lots of other young men, doing or not so young men, in case of who are doing roughly the same thing. And so, I do think it's actually the social um, activity that is somewhat submerged when we talk about the examinations, because we talk about. Single about individual uh, competition, and sort of individuals against each other, sort of forgetting about the fact that these young men, of course, they're living together, they're they're socializing together, they're going to brothels together, and that piece I think is what I'm trying to bring forward as the social context in which really powerful friendship bonds could be made. Because the fact was, most of these guys failed, right? I mean, most of these <laughs> most of these men did not, in fact, walk away with positions and prestige and, and powerful patrons. Um but they did walk away with those social ties. And of course I'm not um you know I have I'm focusing on a fairly small group of of, of writers, um, but I think it's really important to think about how the examinations fostered really new ways of of uh, literary of competing in literature and also social bonding, homosocial bonding.
1: I think using the metaphor, not necessarily metaphor, but comparison of Olympic-style training is really great <laughs> it's useful here, um, and I think I'm going to adopt that with tell students. It's just a really different way of thinking about what was happening here compared with um, how you know a lot of people think about what it is to, uh, you know, to, to read and to learn and to go through an education. And it, you also mentioned um, the importance here of attracting attention and kind of a Attracting the kind of prestige that might lead to a position, and this is very much a focus of the next chapter. You talk in this next chapter, Chapter 2, about the importance of recommendations from patrons to help along these lines and um, to help scholars along this path. And you talk about here the Tang practice of self-promotion and give a lot of really interesting examples of how mid-Tang writers could use the knowledge of others to persuade prospective patrons to support them and their peers, especially in the absence of influential families, rich families, rich mentors, etc. One of the examples um, that you look at specifically speaks to someone you just mentioned, Meng Jiao, right? Um, So um, in a section devoted to... Um, looking at the ways that when writing for prospective patrons, writers might privilege a knowledge of tradition, a knowledge of literary talent, a knowledge of exam success, right? Um, you look specifically at the text that Hanyu and friends wrote to recommend Meng Jiao in the 790s and early 800s for support. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you think is most interesting about that particular set of texts for our purposes?
0: I will, and, and I, will, I will say first
1: that um,
0: it's, it's quite unusual that we have what we might think of as a, as a kind of a crowd of texts gathered around Mengjiao, and I was incredibly excited to discover that I did have so many perspectives from which to reconstruct this campaign. I mean, I don't think there's any better way to, to put it that Mengjiao's friends and associates conducted for him. Um, I mean, I think the real question uh, about this is how effective was it? You know how how effective was this campaign in the end um, in putting someone forward, especially if you're dealing with in the case of Manjiao, uh someone who really apparently was not much of a prose writer at all, um, and and it had a fairly limited literary talent, and then I'm. Um, we would need to have more texts for specific people in the same way, and I don't know that we've got that. I don't think we've got it extant in the Tom tradition. What is most interesting and I think in some ways poignant to me about this particular example is that it's clear that all of this effort begins in instrumentality. It begins with the effort to promote Montiel, um, not merely because they were uh, fond of him, but because they admired his talent and also because they were um, ideologically uh, committed to the same goals and the same ideas, whether that's the, um, the resurrection, the, the uh, revival of the spirit of antiquity, or a commitment to a new literary style. So there's ideological continuity and coherence in the group. But it's clear that over the years, that matures and changes, and um, the bonds um, blossom into something that we want to think of um, more like intimate friendship. So it's actually quite important to me, it was very quite important to me to come back in Chapter 5, which I fondly called the chapter where everyone dies, um, <laughs> um, to come back in that chapter and to to look at Hayu's stealing inscription from Mengjiao as as a kind of late-life reflection on what that relationship meant and how you commemorate um, the talent of someone with whom you've spent all these years in ideological continuity and and friendship as well as affection. Um, So so this tension uh, between that I think is inherent in the text um, and inherent in the period between friendship as a merely instrumental social practice and friendship as a source of identity and kind of emotional coherence. um, This is something that I really wrestled with the whole book. Um, I I see it in the text and bringing it to life um, for people in translations and discussion was, was was a central challenge of the book.
1: And one of the relationships that we'll also see, speaking of relationships that persist through the text, um, developing and um, uh, getting really interesting and really um, quite intimate over the course of the book is another relationship that's also described in this chapter. If um, the letters of recommendation, especially um, the ones that Hanyu mobilized, right, and on behalf of Meng Jiao, were emphasizing the importance of a knowledge of tradition, then the letters that you look at um, uh, in the case of Baijiwi and Zhen, in this chapter are emphasizing instead innovation right and mm-hmm. they uh, in particular you're using these as a way for us to understand celebrity here and how some of these writers were using a focus on innovation and celebrity to kind of translate into potential official success so can you speak a little bit to that one
0: Absolutely, and so at the beginning of the chapter, I, I uh, deploy some theories from social psychology, social psychology about uh, group identity formation and how um, groups can, uh, how members within groups can ally themselves uh, to one another and define themselves against other groups. And so, one of the arguments about Bai and Yeun-jen is that they were able to leverage a kind of rhetoric of innovation and change because they had received public acclaim, that is to say, that the stage, of the examinations, and their really kind of spectacular successes, one after the other, gave them the mandate to experiment and be bold in a way that I think Han Yu and his group did not have. Um, though Han Yu obviously had the seven ninety-two successes, um, by Juyi and Yuan Zhen were able to. Um, draw upon what is honestly this funio, this kind of playboy celebrity um, to be literarily bold um, in a way that, that the others weren't. Um, because certainly there's the same sense of social critique and um, uh, you know the times are parlous and we're writing to reform the world. We see that both in Hayu and in Hayu's group and in, and the work of IG Nenjin. But I think by and it had a different kind of platform. Um, and that was given to them by the incredible successes that they had in the early stages of the exam, but especially in 806 in the decree examination. And that was the first year of Xianzong's of reign, which was itself a political moment just full of promise and excitement. And so the conjunction of those things uh, really allowed them to be bold in ways that um, that they recognized and took advantage
1: of. <laughs> and I think um, in particular for readers who and listeners who will become, hopefully, readers who are particularly interested in integrating this within a broader um, perhaps comparative literary frame, there's some really interesting work that's happening right now in medieval studies, medieval literary studies more broadly um, about uh, innovation and newness, right, and discourse mm. and language of innovation yes. and newness. And it might be really interesting, right, to, um, to kind of think about this. Um, that could be a really super interesting seminar, I think patty Ingham has has a book out on that um, in the context of european stuff i think I think it 's
0: absolutely incredibly rich topic and it 's one that I wrestle with all the time because you know I style myself actually as a literary historian because what I really like to do is study why and how Chinese literature changed um, um, and so Thinking about how you defend newness is just kind of a thing that I've been doing for a long time. How, how, what are the, what are the defenses within the canon that allow you to innovate? You know, we go back to Shuo, right? Um, and how do you, how do you defend specific kinds of changes when you make changes to a literary genre or to a particular style. This is this is a really rich problem that I think we can think a whole lot more about.
1: And it's very timely um, right now as well, right? When you think about the kind of conversations about newness and innovation that are happening across Conversations um, about digital media and and yes. so yeah so let's yes. let's potentially come back to this okay all right <laughs> yes. but um, but the ne- as we move to the next chapter this is one of my favorite chapters I have a couple favorite chapters here one of them and this is the chapter that looks at verse exchange in the mid Tom um, you look here at the widespread popularity of composing and collecting poetry in groups and that takes um, at least a, n- a number or a couple of forms. Um, you look at poem-to-poem poem sequences and exchanges, and there are also exchanges that happen within the context of a single poem in a linked verse form. Now, one of the larger contexts within which you situate this um, poetry exchange and collaborative writing is a context where we see a decentralization of literary culture. So literary or literati rather are mostly composing these kinds of exchanges outside the quarter capital. Um, instead in provincial capitals or private lodgings. We talked about this briefly before, but let's come back to it and talk about it a little bit more now. Why is this so important um, for the work that this part of the book is doing?
0: Well, I would preface my response by saying that, of course, plenty of literary conversation is still going on at, in Taiwan and certainly within the imperial court. It wasn't that that somehow has vanished. But it's clear when we look at collections and look at prefaces to smaller collections and things like that, that um, not only is literary composition in groups outside the capital increasingly prized, um, they, they want to publicize it as well. So we see these things being, we see even the prefaces being exchanged, that there's, it's clearly a um, a vogue. Um, so wait, now I need to repeat your question because oh, I uh, <laughs> I so I why tried. is
1: it? No, no, not at all. Um, so why is it important to direct our attention to what's happening outside or to the fact that this is happening outside the corridor capital? So what's, um, what's important um, about that to shaping how we understand what's going on here? Well, because... Uh, If we want to
0: talk about friendship formation, and and I'm going to argue that uh, the site of the examinations is incredibly important, the question then becomes, oh, well, after the period of the examinations, do simply the friendships and that literary energy of friendship dissipate? Well, of course not. So by looking at what's happening Outside the capital, when people are reassigned and join new groups and new circles in the southeast, for example, in the you know that region or something like that, um, we begin to understand how the social relationships are sustained over time, and we also see how creativity and very productivity continues outside the merely kind of careerist uh, producing writing for. Um, as as part of one's life in the capital. Um, And so I think we see then how how the friendships are, how friendships and the literary creativity of friendship um, manages to, what should we say, um, spread disseminate to other regions. Um, And this is very important when we want to think about the history of late-time literature, which we don't know enough about, in part because of the sources. Um, Because we don't see merely capital-centric compositions and merely capital-centric writers. Um, we see all kinds of unusual writers that are scattered all around the empire and whose, whose collections survive and become important in, in later generations. So thinking about, so since we have this wealth of texts from the mid Tang moment, it's very important to look at the literary landscape and see how those texts themselves grew out of places that were not China and were not way up. So that's that's how it plays into the larger picture of literary history from the top.
1: Thank you. That's super helpful. And um, I'll mention for listeners that there's a lot of really fascinating textual material that's dealt with in this chapter that we won't have a chance to talk <laughs> about, um, just to kind of mark them. There's a series of prefaces to group poetry compositions that you offer really wonderful close readings of. Um, there's a, a part of the chapter that looks at the linked verses of Han Yu and Meng Jiao, um, and, which is really, really interesting as well. And, um, among other things, considers the ways that this is kind of a turning point in Hanyu's development. But what mm-hmm. I want to ask you about is, um, again, um, coming back to my favorite team in this book, <laughs> um, the exchanges of Jui and Zhen. You look at a series of Changhe exchanges between Bai and Yuan on their readings of their own past as they each are leaving career success behind for lives in far-off places. This is a fascinating exchange, and I wonder if you could speak to what you find is most interesting and important about this particular exchange.
0: Sure. it's, um, it's I found that entire uh, history very, very poignant in that um, they experienced, quote-unquote, exile. You can talk about how, why I don't use the word, the word exile. They, they experienced political demotion and and being marginalized outside the capital in such different ways. Um, G had a much better... Situation um, throughout his years outside than Yojen did in his second um, demotion. And watching them grow further apart in the ways that they were dealing with each other and the ways they were dealing with the events of the past was was simply fascinating. Um, until, and then I think I made this point at the conclusion of that section on nostalgia. Where it seems that they're they're almost speaking past each other, and yet the desire to remain engaged because there are of course hundreds more poems. I mean, you know, this is a handful of poems on a very specific problem, which is how they're looking at their past together. Um, the the way they continue to engage one another, um, but it, in a, in almost a kind of competitive grappling way, um, as that period as we grow closer to eight twenty is. Is really, it's something that I think I would like to go back and write more about. I would like to expand and look at a, a broader selection because we really don't have a poetic relationship like this before in Chinese history. Um, and it's, it's endlessly rich and there's a great deal more to be, to be said about the way these two poets engaged each other and challenged each other as writers to, to, um, rethink ideas, to, uh, write, uh, more keenly, more precisely. Um, and they do it in this engaged, dynamic way, not so much in a kind of prosaic, uh, critical way. They may have done that as well, but it doesn't survive.
1: So we'll get to more on Bai Tui and Yunjen Zhen in just a moment, but you just mentioned something offhand that I would actually love to hear more about, which hmm. is... Um, the way you feel about the term exile. Um, can you speak mm. a little bit a little bit more? Because, and here's why um, for listeners I'm asking, one of the um, really interesting things that's happening here in this chapter is an emphasis on the importance of the kind of physicality of maintaining friendships, right, and the geography of friendships here. So this way of thinking about space is actually quite important to what's going on. So could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Absolutely. So, um... The reason I don't use the word exile is because it suggests a finality that was simply not present, at least in the minds of those that were sent away from the capital. Um, so if we take the example of Liu Zhongyuan, Liu Zhongyuan certainly um, in, the, in the first exile, in the Yongzhou exile, now I said exile, but in, when his, in, <laughs> his, okay. posting, in his posting to uh, to Yongzhou, certainly never lost hope up through 815, that he was, he would eventually get recalled. That all would be forgiven, and he could make his way back to the capital. And you can see this in lots of the letters that he wrote to people back in China and people in power. Um, so there's never the there's never the loss of wanting to be back in office, uh, closer in and in a, in a more powerful position. So. I use demotion. I use, I think demotion is the word that I use most often. Um, but also the word exile suggests a kind of solitary existence that simply wasn't true for for most of the men um, when they were shut out, even if they were in the, the far, far south or in a, in a very isolated place. Because there was company and, and one sought to have company. You looked for um, the local magistrate or uh, people would travel through. And so there was no sense in most of the writing from the period when people are set down that you somehow disengage far from it. And that is the critical role of literary texts, of letters and poems and and other kinds of writing in uh, maintaining this social network because it was also a a way to maintain your viability um, as an official um, and and to somehow refurbish your reputation or to find a local patron who was going to help you uh, move back up the ladder or or. Access a local network, perhaps. So that's why I don't use the word Excel.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much, Anna. Um so as we come to the next chapter, we're also eventually going to get to um another treatment of this um team that I again just love and I'm gonna to go totally spending <laughs> um an a disproportionate amount of time on, but that's okay, um you, I'm interviewing so I can do it. So before we get back to Bai and Yun, let's contextualize what's happening in the context of introducing that later exchange or not, right? Um mm-hmm. as we'll see. This is a chapter on the epistemology of friendship. It's fascinating. It looks at the genre of letters to friends and focuses on how these letters addressed problems of knowledge and understanding, both in concrete ways and also in abstract ways, um, in ways that are philosophical in nature and in ways that are more personal in nature. Now, medieval letters between friends, as you describe here in this chapter, Often foregrounded the problem of understanding and misunderstanding, right? Knowing and not being known between writer and reader or writer and recipient. And the chapter is going to take us into important examples of both of these larger um, epistemological phenomena. The first one you look at is um, the context of understanding, and then we'll get to misunderstanding in a moment. In the context of understanding, you look specifically Um, for part of this, at letters that reflect on ways that social knowing might inform and might be a way to think about other forms of knowing. So because that's really, really interesting um, from the perspective of epistemology, can you talk about this way of understanding understanding here? How Mm -hmm. How is social knowing for you most interestingly being translated into other forms of knowing? Well, I will say
0: that in fact I initially resisted thinking that that these writers saw a connection. I initially resisted thinking that they were willing to consider the question of how children, how knowing others, how knowing people could articulate or could Lead to other kinds of knowledge, and then as I really pushed harder on the text, it was clear that that their wrestling with the problem of understanding was not merely about interpersonal understanding. That in fact, particularly so that focuses on letters by Haimy and letters by G, that in fact, in these letters written to friends and about relationships, they would um, modulate, if you will into the question of discursive knowing, of how do we know heaven? How do we understand our faith? And in fact, when we look at texts like the journal, I, I, I cite uh, passages from the Mean in the chapter, it's clear that that they were inspired by very old discourses about how these kinds of knowing can connect to one another and, and produce Knowledge in important ways. Um, so I, this was definitely a case where I was following the lead of the text and and trying to understand where where they were going um, in, in their thinking in their exploration of the problem of understanding and knowing.
1: So not only was understanding a major theme here, but also misunderstanding was an important theme. And you talk in the second part of this chapter about the ways that some texts didn't highlight. You know, how knowing translates into other forms of knowing, but instead highlighted conflict and criticism, highlighted the gap and misunderstandings between writer and reader or writer and recipient. So for you, what are some of the most important things going on in that context in terms of the materials you worked with?
0: Well, I have a, an article that has just come out by uh, in a volume that's edited by Antje Richter um, from Brill um, on epistolary culture, and I in that article, I look at the expression of emotions. I look at the expression of anger and affection. Um and so that that sprang out of my work on, on this chapter. So, misunderstanding, first of all, as I say the outset of the chapter, you know, we have to be kind of suspicious of the letters that we have, which is to say that letters that talk about misunderstanding unless they reflect well on the writer, we're unlikely to be saved in a writer's collection, right? So the very few texts that we have that explore misunderstanding in in depth are um, We have to think about the social context and think about the silences and omissions that are are likely there in the text. Um, Having said all that, I was actually surprised by the degree of emotion that we found in these righteous anger, indignation, um, the desire to correct the other person and demand from the recipient uh, an acknowledgement of. being right, that the writer is, is correct. Um, and that was what was really fascinating about the letters that I looked at there, is that it wasn't, is that it blended the personal and the intellectual in ways that I found completely unexpected, and that's frankly new in the tradition. The question is, is it new in the tradition, or is it simply that these are the kinds of letters that these writers saved? I mean, frankly, my my, um, my impulse is to say it's probably number two. Um, so, uh, you know, we have the famous letter of um, between Chantal and Xikang, um uh Chi dissolving their friendship, and we have um things in the Iwan and the Thu that talk about how you how you sever right? Jue jiao, how you sever friendships in the language that you use. So there's there is a traditional um there's a traditional rhetoric, there are figures that you can use in that kind of thing. But I was quite frankly surprised by the blending of individual and specific points of, mis, uh, of, of disagreement, and the larger with the larger issues, intellectual, ideological issues that are there at play in the letters. That was absolutely fascinating
1: to me. So, some of these relationships are severed, and some of these relationships. Are silenced. Um, And we talked a little bit before about the importance of physicality of friendship and physical distance. And the coda of this chapter takes us back into Bai and Yuan's relationship to look at some of the consequences here, specifically in a letter, um, which you call the most famous extant letter from the Tang, Bai Jui's letter to Yuan Zhen of 817, the consequences on friendship of silence. Now here, Bai is writing after almost two years of silence, um, and it's a really fascinating case. Could you talk a little bit um, here about what you think is most interesting about this particular letter in this broader context? The uh,
0: the funny thing about this letter, and I've given a paper about this, is that it's it is terribly famous as a letter from the Tong, and it's so completely unusual. Um, it's unusual stylistically. It's unusual for including included poems. It's unusual in the way, in the really intimate way that Baiji addresses Yuan Zhen. And so when we push hard on the text, um, we see that it's trying to do a lot of different things, close that physical gap, trying to um, hopefully reassure Yuan Zhen, but also, as I say, trying to write to him with the knowledge that Young might be dead. And so how do you do all of those things at the same time? Um the broader context of and by which by the broader context you mean sort of the broader context of how do you sustain friendship across long distances and and how do you maintain that intimacy?
1: Mm-hmm. I think okay. The broader context of um, the chapter in terms of understanding and misunderstanding, right? Okay. yeah. So this is a coda, and I think it, it brings us into the chapter as well. So in terms of how we understand the epistemology of friendship, is there anything notable about this letter that, for you, speaks interestingly to that problem?
0: Yes. Um, what's so surprising about this letter is that he doesn't expect a response. Right, is that the letter is written in a way? So the whole chap during the whole chapter, I talk about the dynamic epistemology of, of 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 letters, of epistolary culture. That that letters presume an audience. Letters presume that there is a duologue on the other side of the correspondence who will be responding. But in this letter, by doing withholds those very common gestures that we see in the literary text of, of asking about Yuan or, or engaging him in some way. It's narrative, um, but it, but it doesn't expect a response. And so that's that sense of perhaps finality or, um, that expectation that this is somehow a last communication. Um, but you only understand that about this completely unusual letter, how unusual this letter is when you read other kinds of friendship letters and you see that kind of, that, that engaged, responsive quality. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I had to include, include the letter in the chapter, um, in part because it is so famous, but I needed to show um, to readers the ways in which it was un, unusual and, and doing things that were quite new and different from, from other kinds of friendship letters.
1: And I think that's so important because one of the things that it shows by using the kind of exception to highlight the rule, right, is how important the assumption of a response is to a lot of these letters insofar as it, uh, or and and I think that's important because it helps us maybe rethink what constitute the boundaries of a text, right? If a letter, if if a text is written to be part of a future dialogue, right, the assumption Mm. is that that the text itself is going to spread beyond just what you have in front of you as the letter. And that's, I think, a really useful and a really interesting way of opening up how we think of a text as an individual um, and as an individual unit um, and I, I think, really helpful ways. Let me just add one
0: thing about that. Um, and, and it is a, a feature that I explore in the, in the Emotions article, which is that, of course, um, letters could be loaded down with all kinds of uh, Conventions, right? With just kind of formulate openings and closures and even the letters that I look at have some of those. And so what I think is so striking about the letters of friendship in the mid tongue is their resistance to using those. And um so that really forces us to think, why if they're making that choice, why are they making that choice? Um and uh, so I just wanted to add that about sort of the, the question of how these letters also contribute to a general sense, um, the general literary change that we see in the Tang period. Great.
1: So as we move from here to chapter five, um, this, we move to an extraordinarily moving and very, very powerful chapter. This is a chapter that looks at mid-Tang forms of funerary writing to deceased friends during what you call the golden age of funerary writing here. Now, the range of genres that it's possible to write in here gives writers the opportunity to commemorate a past friend in, as you put it here, many different voices. So there's a kind of polyvocality that's enabled by the plurality of these genres that are available um, for a friend to use to memorialize, to speak to, to speak for, um, to speak on the behalf of a deceased friend. And this is happening in two major categories of texts. The first category of text you look at um, is uh, funerary inscriptions. Right? Now you talk about some of the most important features of funerary inscriptions as, as a category of text for um, writing on behalf of writing to, writing for, deceased friends, and these include um, the importance of foregrounding the lineage and the living descendants of the deceased, the importance of um, sort of these inscriptional genres including epitaphs, Uh, spirit pastele inscriptions for lending authority to personal assessments. You describe that here. And you also talk about the ways that friends here could take the place of or could extend the family in performing kind of rituals um, and also practical matters of death. So um, there's a lot going on here. Can you talk for us about what you think is one um, one what you think are some of the most interesting aspects of these inscriptions for how we understand friendship and its transformations in this period?
0: Well, the, one of the points that you mentioned um, that I talk a little bit about is is the difficulty of asserting friendship in. These, um, in these particular, particular funerary genres, where the conventions of, say, whether we're talking about the Muchumi or the Shabalbe or these inscriptional genres, the conventions really forced, tended to force the writer to focus on as I said, the lineage and the state of biography and the political career, um, perhaps some mention of literary works, and then a brief mention of character, and then boom, you're done, right? So there isn't, a, there isn't an appropriate place in the inherited genres to talk about friendship. So inserting friendship, exploring friendship, in the context of these highly conventional and, and really perhaps some of the most traditional and high-bound genres in the in the medieval literary tradition, inserting friendship in these texts really takes creativity and um and innovation. So um that's that's something that I would I would say first. Um it's not that literati friends had never written for their literati friends after death before, that certainly had happened. The question becomes: how do you talk about the friendship? in the context of what is basically a a, a template, a biographical template that you're supposed to follow. And so as I moved from form to form, from genre to genre, it was astonishing to me to see the variety of ways in which they were able to explore the interpersonal relationship as well as the individual person's political career and lineage and and that kind of thing. Um, And it was clear that it required different strategies as you moved from genre to genre, the um, the the key one, the offering text form, being the most lyrical um, and the most subjective, allowed a friend to speak from his own individual position and their and their shared experience. Um, but the more formal and again um, formulaic genres. Really, I think writers had to struggle with figuring out how to insert themselves or insert a friendship circle into the record of that person's life. So that was. That was um, very surprising to me as I explored these texts, seeing all the different ways that writers were able to expand the boundaries of different subforms um, to do so, to, to write friendship into the story.
1: Now, these offering texts and elegies are also given um, ample space and a, and a really interesting discussion here in this chapter. These jo- genres were more performative, and as you describe it here, they'd al- they allowed mourners to speak their feelings directly. To the dead friend. And so they became um, in ways kind of more emotional, more emotionally evocative than the other more um, inscribed genre of texts. You look at three specific approaches to the offering text as a site for public mourning and also for private mourning. And of course, the one that I want to ask you to speak to. Is the example from my dream team here, right? Um, but, and it's, it's also extraordinarily moving. This is Baijui's offering for Yun Um It's extraordinarily um, evocative here, and it's very, as I just mentioned, very, very moving um, for a reader. So, could you speak to that text in particular in this larger context of this chapter?
0: I will and I'll tell a story about that text Yay. which is <laughs> that I was in my office in Tucson, Arizona in 2004 starting to work on this project which I thought at the time was going to be probably a series of articles on by GE Engine and I was wrestling with what is frankly a difficult text um, these these two ones can be, can be really challenging and I had spent the entire afternoon working on this text and I got to the end and I was completely overwhelmed and I felt Tears sprang to my eyes, and I thought, "Well, this is silly. You know, this is this is staged. This is performed grief, and and it's full of, of you know, conventional language and over the top rhetoric that he's using to impress other people." And so, yes, it is those things, but it's also absolutely moving in part because he tackles the story of the two men's relationship from so many different perspectives it is exhaustive and exhausting as a text because he talks about their their personal friendship their political careers their um literary achievements and then closes with with a, with a with a physical description of um what it will be like to be about him and how he feels and the pain and the possibility of rebirth. Um, and it's it's just a tour de force. It's incredibly long. It's very, very long. Um, it includes poems. It's intensely personal in some places and intensely formal in, in other appropriate places. Um, and so this was this was definitely a piece whose complexity opened up to me the possibilities of, of what friendship, um, of the ways in which friendship could uh, prompt this kind of aggressive changing of a conventional form and really prompt some very sincerely felt uh, emotion from the different writers. Um, so that was, it was actually a touchstone piece for me and I, um, but then I began to read other Jiwen and to see in them the range of perspectives and the range of responses that people could, uh, could people could have from different deaths. And I have to say that this is an area that I am continuing to work on, looking at commemorative both the inscriptional texts and these Jiwen and uh, starting to look at ones, particularly to when I'm written for wives and children and close relatives, because I want to expand this question of um, emotional, personal response in what can be very formulaic and, and brief texts. So that's something I'm, I'm going to continue
1: working with. Excellent. And this is um, another opportunity for me at this point to say again that the book is amazing. And um, <laughs> really, 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 truly, and what, this is an example of one of the ways... That that's true. I think the way you've decided to set up the structure of the book as a, you know, a kind of life history of one of these friendships brings us into this friendship between um, Bai and Yuan from the beginning of the book, and we become part of the development of this story. And so, just narratively um, and rhetorically, by the time we get to the end here, it's even more powerful, right? As a result of that, and even more moving because you've given us structurally the opportunity to really get to know their friendship. Um, which means that at the end, you know, when we have by writing like this for Yuan, it's kind of emotionally wrenching in a way that really speaks to your decisions as a writer. Um, so thank you for that. Um, well, I'm,
0: I'm very grateful that, that it uh, that it read that way to you because that was very much what I had in mind. And the thing is, there were lots and lots of... Interesting possible ways of structuring this book. And I originally thought about doing it thematically. And for example, detaching um, the question of instrumentality and patronage and kind of bracketing that as a problem and looking across the life course and and different people and that kind of thing. But then in the end, um, because of the dynamic that I mentioned earlier when we were talking, I saw the friendships changing and growing and maturing in the text. And so it, it seems really appropriate to me to let the text show that to the reader in English as well. Well,
1: I think, that, I think it's clear that, that worked really, really well. And, and also, I'll just mark again for listeners, um, get your hands on a copy of the book and make sure you get to this... Um, in Chapter 5, and you obviously read the whole thing, but because it is really, really, genuinely, really moving. So as we come to, um, uh, toward the conclusion of our conversation, Anna, we come to the conclusion of the book, there's a lot of things happening here in the conclusion that we won't have time to, t- to talk substantively about, but I'll just kind of mark things and then open it up a little bit for you. You talk here, among other things, about um, the impact of mid-tongue writing on a broader literary culture and talk about the consequences, um, among other things, of understanding the work that we've read about now in um, the rest of the book in the context of the broader space of elite male friendship right, in Chinese culture. So um, part of the conclusion talks about the broader consequences of these particular genres for understanding friendship historically in elite male culture um, more broadly in China. You also talk about um, some of what the chapter raises as particularly promising future areas of research. So I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about this before we close um, for Mm -hmm. listeners, right, who might be interested in these topics and looking for opportunities to get involved in this kind of research themselves. So um, one of the uh, potential ways forward that you identify is this tension between sameness and difference, in mid-tong male friendship, so challenging us to rethink how we read voice in this text and how we might read for multiple and layered voice. Another possible way forward is in terms of a, a contribution to scholarship on masculinity, heteroeroticism, and male homoeroticism in China, before the song especially. And a third possibility is sort of changing how we think about the relationship between kinship-based and non-kin relations. Medieval China. So, for you, um, what are among these, or perhaps other possibilities um, that I haven't mentioned, what are some of the most promising and exciting ways forward that you would most like to see um, future scholarship on?
0: Well, I think, um, and there's so much to be done on friendship just generally, (laughs) but. um, I think the one that is perhaps most pressing and certainly um, the most interesting in terms of contemporary scholarship is this question of uh, male friendship and uh, male homoeroticism and and, and also heteroeroticism. And so to link that, as I do in the conclusion, with the problem of sameness and difference, one of the points I make very, very briefly as I speed on to the end of the book um, is that I think more reflection on the ways in which male, elite male friends asserted their affection for other male friends, looking specifically at the language um, and the way they claim sameness um, is going to intersect, is going to help us understand the difference between um, heteroerotic and homosocial affection. Okay? So to expand on that for a second. So when the midtown writers constantly emphasize their told their, their sameness with their, uh, with their male friends. I make the point that this is very, very different from what we see in the kinds of texts we have later in the tradition where the hierarchical relationship, the male, female hierarchical relationship is reinscribed in male homosexual relationships. And so, I think this would be a really interesting way into the problem, even, even during the time where we don't have a lot of texts that suggest homosexual homoerotic content. But going back and thinking about the ways that friendship, that affection and um, closeness, intimacy and friendship, male friendship is depicted in tongue texts versus uh, heteroerotic desire, is represented and depicted in context. I think that could be a very, very rich um, area of exploration. And it's something that I've done a little bit with and I'm doing a little bit more with in um, talking about um, metonymy and the ways in which uh, friendship, the male friend is depicted physically. In particularly in poems, um, uh, in comparison to the ways that women who are objects of desire are depicted in in these poems in Tom poetry, um, so I think that's I think that's probably the most know, maybe the most available and, and enticing area of of scholarship, um, but also the question of voice and and. What happens when you have a multiple, a, a polyvocal text? How does that complicate the problem of, of subjectivity? Who is the I that is speaking in this text? How do we, how do we identify that particular war? Um, and which person is it? I, I think the, the way that exchange poetry and and Bien-Ju and things like that complicate the question of subjectivity is. Is really interesting. And there's so much to be done. There's, there's plenty of it in later periods as well. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will, will take up some of those threads
1: That's in really the future. Yeah, I would love to go to a conference on the eye. Somebody should organize that. Mm. So Ooh. listeners, somebody take on the organizational <laughs> responsibilities and invite us, okay? Yes, the unstable eye. <laughs> exactly. So, Anna, thank you so much um, for making the time. I mean, it's really been a pleasure. And of course, there are a million billion things, right, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. But now that we're um, at the conclusion, is there anything um, anything special, anything in particular that didn't come up but that you might want to mention for listeners? Goodness, I don't think so. Um, because you just you you
0: did so much. You, your questions were so far ranging. Um, I guess the one thing that I would say is that that throughout the book. So there, as you pointed out, there are a lot of there are a lot of themes, and I explore a lot of different kinds of texts. Um, and one of the problems that kind of lingers in the background that I hope eventually to uh, more explicitly. Uh, hook up to work on friendship is the question of of change, of literary change, and um, the idea that uh, changes in social practices can impact the kinds of literature we see in medieval China in a in a complex and and in some ways submerged way. So um, my hope in this book was in some ways to provide a model for people to push harder and to push beyond a lot of the received narratives. In this case, the received narratives about mid literature, which is that we have schools and each of the schools, you know, sponsored their own styles and they didn't talk to other people and, um, um, you know, there's a kind of an atomistic quality, I think, sometimes about about research on on midtown literature. Um, and so, uh, I, I really wanted to push beyond some of those um, simpler models of social and, and cultural and literary change, and and encourage people to explore texts that are not part of the anthologies that aren't typically. Read when we study how you you know don't actually study this piece or that piece, and and to bring those into a fuller understanding of of, of a problem. Um, that's that was a, definitely one of the goals of the book. Um, something I'm very interested in.
1: So now that the book is out, you've said a little bit already about a next project on commemorative texts, um, especially. Um, in the context of women and children and close relations, do you want to speak a little bit more to that? And perhaps, um, if you if you're working on anything else as well, that's that's also fine. Well,
0: sure. Actually, the, my interest in the commemorative
1: text uh, comes
0: from the work on a brand new project, uh, which is about the Five Dynasties and Northern Song uh, rereading their their uh, their inheritance of the Tang literary past and the ways that they represented tong literature and so essentially this project is a new book and it will have three components and basically I look at three different modes of reading and Kind of rewriting the Tom literary past, the historiographical, um, the anthological or curatorial, I look at anthologies, and then the anecdotal. And I look at, at uh, collections of anecdotes about Tom writers. And so my interest in commemorative text is thinking about the ways that uh, Lu in particular, but all kinds of things, the you know so Steeles and Shen things that are above ground and d Wen and things like that, prefaces to collections. The ways in which those commemorative bio, uh, biographical texts shape five dynasties in northern Song readings of the Tang writers, particularly in the Zhou Shu and the Xin Tangshu, Um, because what I'm discovering and as I just, just started this research is that, um, in fact, historians would quote from epitaphs, and uh, sometimes we have cases where in the biographies of the old Tang history, um, we don't see any epitaph material or inscriptural material or impact of that. But in the new Tom history, we see that Sonti or has gone back and incorporated material from um, epitaphs and things that had survived in collected works to reshape the biography of a Tom writer. Um, so that's, that's how my interesting commemorative text, that section on Hanyu is called writing, writing the life and death of Hanyu. That's spilling into my new project, um, where I'm going to look at, look at the question in a broader context. So how do, uh, biographical representations of Tom writers shift from, particularly from the old and new Tom into the new Tom history?
1: so best of luck with that project give me a well, call thanks. when that's out and we'll talk about that too um, And thank you so much. Give, me, give me a decade maybe Okay, I, I will hopefully still be doing this <laughs> but in the meantime congratulations on an amazing book and thanks so much for making the time to talk with me about it thank you so much
0: for enjoying the book and it's, very, it's very gratifying to have readers who found these texts as exciting and, and in some cases as moving as I did
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.